Father, we've quietened our hearts, we've quietened our minds, we've spent some time in, in worship and recognition of who you are and what you are to us. And Father, now we wait for you to speak to us. Father, we're looking at our identity, our born identity, our reborn identity. And really, our identity is nothing, Father, unless it's in you. You are our real identity, Father. And we need to find out what that is and what that means for each of us. I pray for Dana and Andrew as they uh, share this message that they've been working on for uh, some time, working hard to find out what you have in store for us, working out what's important to share with us and, and what can be put to the side. Father, may each of us um, just listen and understand what you're trying to say to us. And I just pray for, for clarity of thought and for peace as, as Dana and Andrew share with us. Thank you for this time and thank you for what you're going to say to us this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, I'll confess I've never watched the movie The Born Identity or, or read the novel it's based on, but I did look it up in Wikipedia. And uh, as you probably all know as well, the main character, Jason Bourne, is a man suffering from amnesia. So for much of the movie, he's spending his time trying to figure out what his true identity is. And kind of in a similar today, similar way today, my message will be examining scripture so that we can gain a better understanding of what our true identity is as followers of Jesus Christ. Um, speaking of identities, uh, it reminds me of a story I heard of a case of mistaken identity. There was a man being tailgated by a stressed out woman on a busy high, highway when suddenly the light turned yellow just in front of him. But he did the right thing and he stopped, even though he probably could have beaten the red light if he'd accelerated through it. Well, the tailgating woman hit the roof and the horn, screaming in frustration as she missed her chance to get through the intersection. She was still in mid-rant when she heard a tap on her window and looked up to see the face of a very serious police officer. The officer ordered her to exit the car with her hands up. He took her to the police station where she was searched, fingerprinted, photographed, and placed in a holding cell. After several hours, the policeman approached the cell and opened the door, and she was escorted back to the booking desk where the arresting officer was waiting with her personal effects. He said, I'm very sorry for the mistake. You see, I pulled up behind your car while you were blowing your horn and flipping off the guy in front of you and cussing a blue streak. And then I noticed the Choose Life license plate and What Would Jesus Do bumper sticker and the chrome-plated Christian fish emblem on the trunk. Naturally, I assumed you had stolen the car. So in last week's message, Craig and Rob covered verses 1 through 11 of Romans 6 and discussed how we as Christians are to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. Rob mentioned how this, in this uh, chapter, the author Paul is writing to fellow Christians of whom he considered it a foregone conclusion that they had been baptized. In this morning's message, we continue on in chapter 6 to consider how we should respond to the understanding of what it means to be dead to sin and alive to God. I'll be covering the first part for today, verses 12 through 16, which is subtitled, No Longer Slaves to Sin. While Andrew is going to cover the following verses, which uh, could be subtitled, Slaves to God. So starting in verse 12, Paul writes, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, 
But present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Now verse 12 begins with the word therefore, and at Calvary Chapel it's often taught that when you see the word therefore, you stop and go back and see what it's there for. So let's back up to verse 10, and I'll read from the message version. It says, when Jesus died, he took sin down with him, but alive he brings God down to us. From now on, think of it this way. Sin speaks a dead language that means nothing to you. God speaks your mother tongue, and you hang on every word. You are dead to sin and alive to God. That's what Jesus did. So back in verse 12, we could replace the word therefore with because you are dead to sin and alive to God. So I'll stick that in here. It's because you are dead to sin and alive to God, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey in its lusts. So let's look at a couple definitions in this verse. The word mortal is to use to describe our physical bodies and it means subject to death. And the Greek word, Greek word which is translated lusts here is epithumia, which means strong desires. And in this context, it means the evil desires which are ready to express themselves in bodily action with a focus on pleasing oneself. So we could restate verse 12 this way. Therefore, don't let your desires for your own pleasure control you, for those things are subject to death. The same idea is captured in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides, for, abides forever. Continuing on in verse 13, Paul writes, and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. The New Living Translation puts it this way. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God, for you were dead, but now you have new life. Use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. So let's consider some applications to this verse. Now, a couple weeks ago in Doug's message, he talked about the Christian walk and how we can really think of it as, as a sequence of two steps just repeated over and over again. We need to put off the things that are against his character and put on the things that are consistent with his character. So first, since we are dead to sin, what kinds of things should we put off? Well, the word lust implies strong sexual de desire, so an obvious application for these verses is to put off sexual immorality in any of its many forms. But more generally, the word lust has a connotation of self-gratification, typically without any regard for the consequence to others. It means putting your own desires ahead of others or God we need to put off this self-centered mindset if we are to walk with Christ. And next, since we are alive to God, what things should we be putting on? Well, abiding in Jesus daily is a simple way that anyone can glorify God. We can also 
make an effort to use our God-given abilities and interests in service to God's kingdom and serving others. And we can find creative ways to do that. In Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 to 40, a lawyer asked Jesus, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So philosophers will often ask the question, what is the meaning of life? And for secular man or for intellectuals, this is kind of like the ultimate question. But as Christians, we should know that when we arrive in heaven, Jesus will ask us, what did you do with the life you were given? So as not to be guilty of plagiarism, I must give credit to Tom Owen for the following. So last week we had our team group last Wednesday evening, and Tom led the discussion based on the book of Ecclesiastes, and his lessons expounded upon my point. So here's kind of the Cliff Notes version of that. As you may be aware, the book of Ecclesiastes was written by King Solomon, who was a a true paradox of a man. On one hand, he's the author of Proverbs, and his wisdom was world famous. At the same time, he was a self-styled expert in the pursuit of all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And as the book of Ecclesiastes tells it, this was actually part of an intellectual exercise of his in pursuit of the question, what is the meaning of life? In spite of all of his earthly accomplishments, here was his conclusion. As for a life lived apart from God, in chapter 12, verse 8, he says, everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. But just a couple verses later in verses 13 through 14, he ends the book with this. Here now is my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commands, for this is everyone's duty. God will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. The same declaration is made by Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, verse verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, I need to clarify here what is meant by the judgment seat of Christ. I found an article by Don Stewart in the online Blue Letter Bible that describes this. The word judge, both in English and in Greek, can mean two things. Judgment for condemnation or judgment for rewards. In this case, the judgment seat of Christ is referring to the special judgment that God will hold for believers only. This judgment seat is also known as the Bema seat. As recorded in John 5.24, Jesus affirms that as Christians, we have no fear of condemnation. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. At the same time, scripture, scripture also teaches that what we do with our lives will be measured by its value in God's economy, the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 3, starting verse 13, Paul writes, But on judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. Fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, the builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. 
The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. So from all these verses, we see that, see that while we could have never earned salvation by our works, what we do with our lives as born-again Christians or believers matters a great deal to God. And this also addresses the rhetorical question that Paul poses in verse 15 of our text this morning. So continuing with verses 14 and 15, we read, For our sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Certainly not. So last Sunday, uh, Melanie Denelsbeck was doing the tilling by simply reading the subject verses in Romans. And I particularly liked the way that the version she read from expressed the idea of our old sin nature as fatally wounded. We might at times question, how can we say we are dead to sin when we still mess up? But the idea that the old sin nature is fatally wounded makes sense to me. For a baptized follower of Christ, sin shall not have dominion over you. It's like dead man walking. Verse 16 is a transition between two parts of our message today. And Andrew and I agreed to overlap on it. So I'll start. Um, The New Living Translation puts it this way. Don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. So just a few weeks ago, our family was on vacation in the Lake Superior region, and one of our stops on a trip was to the boyhood home of Bob Dylan in Duluth, Minnesota. Chris and I are both fans, but nothing compared to my mother-in-law, who grew up during the peak of his influence in the 1960s. But I do remember that... uh, In high school, there was one of his albums that I owned. It was called Slow Train Coming, and its biggest hit was called Gotta Serve Somebody. In that song, Dylan is is poetically making the same point as verse 16. Here's an excerpt from that song. You might be a rock and roll addict prancing on the stage. You may have drugs at your command and women in the cage. You may be a businessman or some high-degree thief, They may call you doctor, or they may call you chief. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil, or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Andrew is up next to talk about being slaves to God. Good morning, everybody. So once again, I drew the short stick, and I go last. Um, Before I start, let me just pray. Lord, I I pray that even now you would um, fill me with your spirit, fill all of us with your spirit, Lord. We want to hear from you. We want to um, be changed into your image. I pray that you would speak through um, your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so obviously we've been in the book of Romans, chapter 6. And before I dive in, I'm kind of going to do a recap of of the book of Romans where we're up to right now. Obviously very short, but um, the book of Romans is where Paul lays out the gospel in probably its most complete sense. He's very articulate, and he goes through um, step by step laying out these arguments for the gospel. And in chapter 6, we're covering sin in the believer's life. Um, But up to this point, Paul has laid the groundwork um, explaining how all of mankind is sinful, Chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, he says, 
We've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. Then in verse 4, he goes on to explain how we're made right with God only through faith, that there's nothing on our part that we do, no works on our part. Um, Verses 4 and 5 of chapter 4, he says, To the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Finally, then, in chapter 5, he also highlights that the, the whole purpose of the law, of God's commandments, it wasn't a way for us to be made right with God, but it was to highlight our sins. Uh, verse 20 of chapter 5, he says, the law, came, the law came in so that transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So God's grace, it supersedes our sin. He gave us the law so that our sin would increase, that we would see our need for God. Um, And Paul goes into that even more specifically in Galatians. But here in chapter 6 now, he addresses sin and the life of a believer. And he does so mainly by addressing two questions. Um, Last week, Craig and Rob covered the first one in verse 1, where basically the question is, if God's grace increases as our sin increases, should we keep on sinning? so that God can be more gracious to us. And it's easy for us to write off that question, but it's actually a good one. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's a famous theologian from Wales, he proposes in his exposition of Romans that if we're not running into this misconception of the gospel, we may not be preaching the true gospel. Um, The gospel should be so contrary to our human thinking that we are saved completely on the merits of another that it should cause us to say, well... Are we then free to sin? So it's actually a good question Paul brings up, but his response obviously is no. We should not live a life of sin because we've died to sin in Christ. You see, the believer, we are placed into Jesus and his death and his resurrection. You know, for myself, the old sinful Andrew who came from Adam, he's now considered dead. And there's a new righteous Andrew who's created in the image of Jesus. So why should I continue living in sin? Now Dana addressed um, how we've, we've named this the born identity, and probably just because it's, it's um, easy to use and it's a movie. You know, no real deep meaning there, except for, you know, we have this new identity in Christ. But he covered the movie a little bit. Um, first I want to ask, who's seen the born identity movies? All right, I'm going to have to write your names down so Doug can talk to you when he gets back. No, it's actually, the Born Identity series is one of my favorites. Um, I'm going to give you a quick recap of the first movie. I'm going to ruin it for you if you haven't seen it. But if you haven't seen it up to this point, that's your problem. Um, but basically, Jason Bourne, he's, he's an assassin trained by the CIA. He's a top-of-the-line assassin. He, he goes to try to kill this guy on a mission. He ends up being shot, and he, he's almost dead when he gets saved by a boat in the ocean. And when he comes to, he has amnesia. He doesn't remember who he is. So he spends most of the first movie trying to figure out his past. Um, He discovers he has these crazy skills. He can fight people. He can know how far he can run. There's a certain scene where he's talking about, I know how far I can run before my hands start shaking. I know who here is most likely to have a gun, who can fight well. Um, Eventually, though, he finds out that the CIA is trying to kill him because he's gone rogue. (laughs) 
And this is, it's actually a pretty good example for our Christian lives. You see, in Jason's born, born's life, there's a point to where he doesn't literally die, but he's basically died, and he started this new life with a new identity. He no longer wants to be an assassin. Um, eventually, when he confronts the bad guy in the CIA, the bad guy tells him, Jason, your U.S. government property, you're a malfunctioning $30 million weapon. And eventually, Jason tells him, I don't want to do this anymore. Jason Bourne is dead, you hear me? He drowned two weeks ago. You're going to tell them all that Jason Bourne is dead. In our Christian lives, in the same way, we are dead to sin. We're dead to our old lives. In Christ, we have died to that. We're no longer, in Jason's case, under the employee of the CIA. We're no longer under the power of sin. So Paul says, why should we go back to working for sin? Now, verse 14, which Dana just covered, um, Paul also talks about how we're no longer under the law, but we're under grace. You know, in the church, it's easy to have a misconception that our job as Christians now that we're saved by Jesus is to be as good of people as we can, and we should now try really hard to keep the Ten Commandments and be good people. And while this sounds good on paper, um, if the purpose of the law is to highlight our sins, what happens when we try to live under the law? It's just going to bring up our sinful nature. It, it reminds me of an example I've heard. If you've ever been walking on, along on a sidewalk and you see a sign that says, please don't walk on the grass. And I don't know about you guys, but I wasn't even thinking of walking on the grass, but now that I see that sign, I really want to walk on the grass. And Paul goes into this in Romans 7, how the law, it came to show him his own sinfulness. And there's certain things he didn't even know were sin, but because of the law, now he does. So if we put ourselves back under the law, it's just going to excite that sinfulness in us. Another good example I read about was there was this hotel by the ocean, and they were having, having a few issues with people fishing off of one of the decks. So they put up a sign, no fishing off the decks. After they put that sign up, they had way more issues than they had before. You know, fishing lines getting caught on things, people getting injured. So eventually they took down the signs and their problems went away because no one thought about fishing off the deck anymore. So, I'm sorry, let me catch up where I'm at. So um, again, this is a good question Paul brings up. If we're saved completely on Jesus' performance and not my own performance, what's the big deal if I sin once in a while? And that's the question in verse 15. He says, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? May it never be. So this is the second question Paul's addressing. If we're not under the law, but under grace, is it okay for me to sin once in a while? Um, and again, it's a good question. It's not going to change my standing before God if I'm saved completely by Jesus' work. And if I'm no longer under a list of do's and don'ts under the law, what's the big deal if I sin once in a while? And standing here at the pulpit or here in church, well, it's not a pulpit. I just learned it this morning. What's it called again? A podium? A lectern. Yes, it's a lectern. Um, but here in church today, it's easy to look at this question and see how wrong it is. But if you look back on your own Christian life, I'm sure there's times where sin is just tempting and you're like, you know, I'm tired right now. It's okay for me to be a little grouchy with my wife. It's okay. I know I'm forgiven. Um, and we can write off little sins. And that's what Paul's addressing. So his response in verse 16, as Dana started covering, he says, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, 
either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. So first of all, I want to address the word slave. Um, that's not a word that makes us very comfortable in our culture. You know, it has, that word has a lot of um, racial tension, racial past, especially here in the United States. It's, um, it's linked with the worst kind of racism. Um, we can also maybe think of sexual slavery and the abuse that goes into that. Um, the word slave, it brings up this image in our head of having no choice, of being coerced into doing something. The Greek word that Paul uses here is doulos. And it basically, it does mean that. It means a slave or a servant. During that time, that could be a voluntary or an involuntary thing. You've heard the example of someone choosing to become a bond servant. Um, but there was also, during the Roman Empire, there was the bad kind of slavery, or worst kind of slavery, where they were forced into it without a choice. It's basically someone who's subjected to the will of another. But I want you to note here that Paul's not using the term to imply that we have no choice in the matter. Because he tells us we can present ourselves to sin or we can present ourselves to God. <clears throat> the point here, like Dana covered, is that you have to serve somebody. There's only two choices for the believer. Either we're going to serve God or we're going to serve sin. We cannot be our own self-made masters and serve our own will. You see, there's an illusion that we can kind of make our own will, we can serve ourselves. But if you're not choosing God's way, you're choosing sin. By the sin's very definition, it's anything contrary to the will of God, anything contrary to the character of God. So since God created everything, we live in a world that's dominated by the rule of God. He is the creator. Everything is based upon him and his character. Therefore, anything that goes against him is sin. If you choose to not obey God, you're obeying sin. You see, often sin, it can look like an opportunity for us to make our own decisions, for us to be in control. But ultimately, that's a lie. If we look back at the very first sin of Adam and Eve in the garden, it actually becomes quite clear. You know, they're tempted to eat this fruit because they believe it's going to make them wise, make them know good and evil like God. That's what the serpent, serpent tempts them with. You'll become like God. You'll be able to choose good and evil for yourself. But what happens when they take the fruit and they eat it? Instantly, they're filled with shame. They notice their own nakedness. They start hiding themselves from God. Eventually, when God confronts them, confronts them they even start blaming each other. You see, at that very moment, sin took over their lives. They become enslaved to it. It wasn't just the one decision to eat the fruit, but one decision leads to another. And eventually they started sinning in ways that they had never intended to sin. Because sin, if you choose, whichever one you choose to obey, you're going to become a slave to that one. You know, one of my Bible school teachers, he had this saying he used all the time, and it's stuck in my wife's memory. I had to ask her to remind me what it was. I was going to say I remember it to this day, but that's not true. Um, but he said, sin promises what it can't deliver, it takes you further than you ever wanted to go, and it keeps you longer than you ever wanted to stay. Now, there's, there's a lot of examples we can see of this in our own lives. The, most, or the easiest one is probably telling a lie. We all know that once you tell a lie, you're now forced to tell many more lies to cover that one lie. But how about even thinking back to your childhood? 
know, I can think of times when my friends and I are joking around and maybe one of them says something hurtful to me. And now my pride, I want to say something back and, and kind of put him in his place. I'm not trying to break my relationship with this friend. I just want to hurt him a little bit because he's my friend. Um, but I say something back a little more hurtful, and soon he says something back even more hurtful. And by the end of this, we're yelling at each other and fighting, and I storm off and take my soccer ball, and the game's over, right? And now when I see my other friends, I'm telling them about how much of a jerk this guy is. I might even make up some lies about him, you know? And now I have to lie to my parents to cover up about it. And I'm filled with fear of being found out. I'm filled with guilt. But the picture here is sin, it always leads to more sin. See, the human heart, by its very nature, it demands that we serve someone. We were created to serve God. And we can choose not to serve him, but we must replace him with another God in his place. So Paul uses this answer to confront the question of, is it okay for us to sin once in a while? And he says, no, because you're placing yourself back in the bondage to sin. You're placing yourself back in its power. Look at verses 17 and 18. He says, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. We as believers, we've been freed from this bondage of sin. And we've been made now slaves of righteousness. But notice that it's done because we are obedient from the heart to the doctrine that we are taught. Basically, Paul is simply referring to faith in Christ. The Romans were obedient to the doctrine he taught them about the gospel. And they placed their faith in Christ. And because of that, we are freed from the bondage of sin. That's something that God does for us. He frees us from that bondage, and he now places us in slavery to God. Now, at first that sounds like, whoa, whoa, I don't want to be anybody's slave. But it's the same principle here. You're going to have to serve one master or the other. So verse 19, Paul says, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. So first, the first part of that verse, he says, I'm speaking in human terms. He's talking about how he's using this example of slavery. Um, there's different views on what he means by this. You know, David Guzik, he's a Calvary Chapel pastor um, from Santa Barbara, and he has a website with all of his notes, so it's it's often helpful to look at what he has to say about a passage. And he talks about Paul is actually, in his mind, Paul's apologizing for using slavery as an illustration <clears throat> because he, know, he knows how degrading it is because it's so rampant during these times. Um, but he knew the illustration would work well. Other expositors, they, they think that Paul here is saying he's using the illustration of slavery because the weakness of who we are as humans demands that we serve somebody. And while both of these might be correct, um, the way I see it here is that Paul, he's using this human example of slavery because we're humans. We need a human example, but he's teaching a spiritual truth so that we can understand it more clearly. And what he says is, just as you presented your, mem your members as slaves to impurity, now present them as slaves to righteousness. Notice that Paul doesn't say, you were slaves of sin, so now try really hard to stop sinning and to be a good person. He says, no, you presented just as you presented, so now present. So the question is, how did we present 
our members to impurity? How did we present ourselves as slaves to unrighteousness? And if you think back to these examples, basically it's a series of decisions um, choosing to gratify, gratify our flesh. When that friend says a hurtful thing to me and it hurts my pride, I now have a decision. Am I going to present myself to obey my flesh, my hurtfulness, and say something hurtful back? Or am I going to present myself to the Spirit and decide to say something gracious back or to just forgive him? And just in the same way as I presented myself to the flesh, and every opportunity that came up, I kept presenting myself to the flesh, and it led to further and further unrighteousness. Paul's saying, in the same way, present yourself to righteousness now. Galatians chapter 5, Paul talks about, he says, Walk in the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. What he's saying here is we have this new life like we covered last week. We are dead in Christ and we have this new life in the Spirit of God. In the same way, we should walk by that Spirit. Just like we obeyed our fleshly desires, we can now present ourselves to obey our spiritual desires. And if you have trouble finding the difference, Galatians 5 is a great place to look because he lists out the fruits of the flesh and the fruits of the Spirit. So now moving on, verses 20 through 23. Paul says, When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. So the the other reason Paul goes into why we should not present ourselves as slaves to unrighteousness is because of the pay and the benefits of which master you serve. You see, each one of them has different pay, different benefits that you get. You know, I was recently unemployed, and if you've been in that boat, you know that one of the big things you look for when you're applying for a job is the pay. That's kind of the reason you work, right? You want to make some money. Obviously, it helps if you're doing something you love, and all those things go into it. But pay and benefits are a really big part of who you choose to work for. And Paul lays out here the pay and benefit of sin. He says, um, you shouldn't you shouldn't present yourselves as a slave to sin because the pay is basically horrible, right? Um, Adam and Eve experienced this perfectly. The natural outcome of sin in your life is for it to lead to more sin and to death. And that's not just a physical death, but it's the destruction of anything good in your life. You know, it destroyed their relationship with God, destroyed their relationship with each other, even destroyed their view of themselves and who they were, their own identity, right? So, The point here is that excusing sin in the Christian's life, it's a dangerous investment with compounding interest. Compounding interest is kind of a miracle of mathematics, right? You make an investment, and you might get a little bit of interest each year, but as the years go on, it grows more and more and more, and it grows to an extent that you couldn't have imagined at the beginning. In the same way, when we make the choices to present ourselves to sin, even though it might be a little one in the moment, it's going to lead to greater consequences ultimately to idolatry, replacing something in God's place. Timothy Keller, he wrote a really good book on idolatry called Counterfeit Gods. And in this book he says, when anything in your life is an absolute requirement for your happiness and self-worth, it's essentially an idol, something you're actually worshiping. When such a thing is threatened, your anger is absolute. Your anger is actually the way the idol keeps you in its service, in its chains. 
See, back to my silly example as a kid, my pride was my idol, because as soon as that was threatened, I burst forth in anger and I followed that idol. I put my pride and how others view me above God's view. And we can do that with many things in life, but as soon as we make that decision, it leads to more decisions to follow suit. You know, Jesus addresses this in Matthew 6, 24. He says, No one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. So choosing something in God's place, it leads to death and separation from him. The only way to root out an idol in our lives, though, is to replace it with a greater love. See, Again, we as humans, were meant to serve something greater than ourselves. There's something meant to capture our thoughts, our imaginations, our desires, and our love. And we'll fill that void with something if we don't fill it with God. Whether it's sex, power, relationships, acceptance, one of those things is going to capture our thoughts, imaginations, desires, and love. But Paul states here that serving God, the benefits are much better If you go to verse 22, he says, But having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. The flip side to being a slave of sin is being a slave to righteousness, in which regard you're now free from sin. And Paul states here the outcome is sanctification and eternal life. Now, sanctification, it's a very churchy word, right? You never hear it outside of church. But basically, what it's talking about is, in the beginning of the chapter, Paul laid out our position in Christ, how we're created new, we're a new life, we're dead to sin. That's our positional truth. Sanctification is how we live that out in our lives now, how we experience that new life and that death to sin. So, again, it's a step-by-step decision to present yourself to the Spirit, And the result is sanctification. We become more and more like Jesus. And the result is also eternal life. Now, Paul isn't just talking here about heaven and how we're going to live forever, although that is a a result of what Jesus has done for us. But the eternal life, it speaks, just like death was more than physical death, it was a death we experienced in our relationships and all aspects of our life. In Jesus, when we yield to the Spirit, we experience eternal life here on earth as well, an abundant life a life where he's free to live in and through us. So ending with verse 23, we've all heard this verse before. It says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, most of the time we hear this verse when someone is sharing the gospel with someone else and we're talking about, you know, everybody's a sinner and the result of sin is death and God's gift is eternal life in Jesus. And obviously that's true. But note as well that the context here, Paul's talking to the believer about the consequences of sin in our own lives. And the wages of sin is death. A wage is something you earn, right? So as you sin, the natural pay for that is death and decay in your own life. But again, with God, we never earn anything from him. He gives it as a gift. The free gift is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So I talked about how The only way to replace an idol in our lives is to replace it with a greater love. And here's a reason or a way for us to freshen our love for God in our lives. Everything he gives us is a gift. It's his goodness um, and his mercy that's evident in our lives. 
So quick summary here. Um, if you're taking notes, these are the main points that I'd like you to take away. First of all, the Christian life is not about being a good person, but it's about being a completely new person. We can't reform the old self. We can't make ourselves better. We can't clean ourselves up. We have to live out a new life that God has given us, which is by faith and by presenting ourselves to him. And the second point is that eternal life, it's meant to be lived out now by faith and by presenting ourselves to God. You know, in our minds we can think, no, I'm saved, and when I die, then I'm going to have eternal life, then I'm going to be free from sin. And again, that's true because the flesh will finally be completely done away with at that point. But we have that opportunity today to live out our new lives in, in, in Christ. You know, I know that occasional sin is going to occur, but we have freedom from that, freedom from guilt in Christ. But we're also free to live out that new life, his power in us. By presenting ourselves as we did to sin, we now present ourselves as slaves to God. So here are the practical steps. Step number one, fix your identity. So renew your mind and reckon what Jesus has done onto your account. Step number two is to focus your mission. You have to obey somebody's mission. So be about God's mission, about his direction in your life. Um, I didn't have time to go into this more fully, but I believe that a lot of times the believer probably struggles with sin because we're not busy doing what God has called us to do. If we're on the front lines where God has called us, if we're obeying his spirit, we're probably not going to struggle with sin as much in our lives. Again, you have to follow somebody's mission, so be about God's mission. And the last one is to foster your love. Spend time daily fostering and renewing your love for God. Um, you're going to serve, ultimately, the one you love the most. So foster that love for God. Here on this earth and with our flesh, it's easy to have something take its place. But remind yourself of the gospel and bathe yourself in it daily. Spend time in prayer and renewing your mind. Not that by this, by this we earn God's love, but we refresh our minds and we focus on him. So let's pray. Lord, I, I thank you for your word and I pray that Lord, that we would remember the things that you have for us. If anything was spoken that is not from you, that we'd be quick to forget those things, Lord. Um, most of all, I pray that our hearts would be renewed, that we would have a, a fresh sense of your love for us, um, that we would focus on you and what you've done for us and the freedom we have in you. I pray all of this in your son's name. Amen. So it's always awkward trying to close things. Um, we're